everyone, this is Lisa J from No Pink Spandex, and we have a very special guest. Uh, this person has produced so many things, I couldn't keep up. I'm scrolling, and it's just the IMDB just couldn't just stop scrolling. It was kind of crazy. But we have executive producer here, Brian Volkweiss, uh, executive producer of The Toys That Made Us. Hello, Brian. Hello, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm glad you're able to come on my little show. <laughs> I'm excited and honored you even wanted to talk to me, so thank you. So let's start out like a little bit of your background and, and how you got into this business. Uh, I am from uh, Queens, New York. I, uh, I saw a little movie when I was about three years old uh, called Star Wars. And oh, it's, uh, it's a small little movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah no big they're, deal. they're still talking about it. <laughs> and uh, basically, I was young enough that I under, you know, I, I understood the movie, but I didn't really understand what a movie was. Uh, so for for you know for a while, I was like, you know, I basically I didn't know the word, but I basically thought it was like a documentary. So mm -hmm. for while I was telling people, oh, when I grow up, you know, I'm, I'm going to be an X-Wing pilot and join the rebellion. And finally, <laughs> uh, you know, after scaring the shit out of my mom, uh, hearing that again and again and again for year, for a while, uh, she bought me a book uh, called, you know, The Making of Star Wars that was for like five-year-olds, which I still have. And uh, as soon as I saw the book and I realized they were little models and not giant Star Destroyers and C-3PO was a skinny dude and not a robot. Uh, ever, literally ever since that moment, all I wanted to do was be in show business. And I, you know, I went to college, which kind of was a waste of time, but I, I went. Uh, <laughs> and then the day after I graduated, I moved out here. And so when you, when you realized that you know this was something that you wanted to do, I mean, like a, a lot of your, a lot of the. Uh, projects that I've seen are like comedy specials and that sort of thing. So like, what made you jump from that? I mean, you're still doing that, but like the toys I made us, where did that concept come from? Where did this generate? So it, it's an interesting, uh, it's a really interesting story that shows you uh, the, the importance and the value of luck uh, that happens uh, within a person's uh, lifetime and career. Um, you're absolutely right. So I was doing all these stand-up specials. Uh, we produced, you know, pretty much the entire first generation of stand-up specials for Netflix when they first got into it. And I got to know a lot of the people there. Uh, and there was a gentleman there, a guy named Devin, and uh, he was in the department that was buying stand-up specials from, from me and my company. And uh, he was basically transferred from that department into a brand new department uh, that was Netflix's first step into unscripted television, you know, reality mm -hmm. TV. So the, the lucky break was not only did I know this guy and we had done business for years and he trusted me, but because we knew each other, uh, he had been to my house, and that's a very important thing because he saw my toy collection. And the reason that that's important is because in 
in Hollywood, just like actors and actresses, producers get stereotyped. So I was always stereotyped as the comedy guy. So for about seven years, I had been trying to sell basically what became the toys that made us. It wasn't called that, but I had been trying to sell it for a long time. So this guy, Devin, by him getting transferred and by him trusting me and by him knowing I was, quote, unquote, an expert in toys, um, when I pitched him the show, he, uh, you know, he didn't buy it right away, uh, but he did, uh, you know, it took about six months, but he gave me notes on my pitch. We made a six-minute tape uh, that showed how we would produce the show, and that tape is what got a greenlit. And when you, when you first came up with the concept, uh, there have been many episodes that have been produced already. Uh, were were these the first ones out of the gate that you said, yes, these are the ones that I want to focus on in terms of episodes? Uh, yeah, I mean, once the thing I always say about Netflix, it's really hard to sell shows to them. But once they buy it, they really trust the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And they, I, I mean, I picked all 12 episodes that have been made. I mean, they, they really just trusted me on everything. Okay, so like, let's get into uh, our neck of the woods, Power Rangers. So, why Power Rangers? Why did you choose that as a topic? So, I have these like imaginary rules, you know, floating around my brain as it relates to like what toys we do. And basically, there's sort of three rules. Rule number one, I call it the Mount Rushmore test. If there was a Mount Rushmore of toys, is there a character or characters in the line that could be on the Mount Rushmore? So for example, my wife, uh, she doesn't know anything about Transformers, but she knows who Optimus Prime is, she knows who Bumblebee is. So does Power Rangers have characters like that? Yes, yes they do. The second thing is, I really want every toy to be a multi-generational toy. And the reason for that is, first of all, these, these episodes are not cheap. So we really need to make sure, if we're spending all this money, all of Netflix's money, that there's a good reward for that investment. So one of the toys I get asked about all the time is masks. Hey, why don't you do mask? Why don't you do mask? And I'm like, well, mask was on the air for two years, uh, and uh, pretty much, uh, you know, only people I would say between 35 and 45, for the most part, know about mask. That does not justify the amount of money it costs to make an episode. So, but Barbie, I think Barbie is entering four generations. GI Joe, three or four. Star Wars is now three generations. So is Power Rangers a multi-generational toy? Yes, absolutely. My son plays with Power Rangers. I didn't really play with Power Rangers, but my friends did. So there's at least two generations of Power Rangers. And then three, it's very important that every episode have a great story. There are some toys that came out that 
someone had an idea, it got greenlit, they put the toy out, and it was a huge hit. That's good for the toy. That's good for the manufacturer. That's not very good for producing a television show. So we really need there to be a good story behind every toy. And that's basically the rules. So how much research do you guys go and, and, and how, much, how long is it a process of producing this particular episode? So we produce all the episodes simultaneously. So it's not like we do Power Rangers, finish it, and then move on to Turtles. Like, they're all being done at the same time. I would say, I mean, it's literally half a dozen researchers and producers combined a couple thousand hours of research between reading books, writing treatments, and we don't just interview people. By the time we do the official interview with the fancy cameras and the fancy lights, we've already interviewed them twice for oh, the really? most part. Okay. Yes. So that's a huge part of how we do what we do is these pre-interviews. So that's, that's a big, big, big piece of this. So yeah, it's by the time we start editing, it's literally been thousands of hours of research and shooting. Any surprises that popped up while producing this show? Always. I mean, every episode has, has at least one surprise of tremendous magnitude and then smaller surprises too. So, um, so yeah, always, always. Anything in particular with Power Rangers, the Power Rangers episode? You know, one of the things that was very interesting about Power Rangers um, that, that was a big surprise was the, you know, there's a, an executive who is at Fox Kids named Margaret Lesh who basically greenlit the show. Everybody at Fox, all the affiliates thought she was smoking crack. Um, at the big presentation where Fox was announcing all of their shows for that year, uh, the affiliates and Margaret's boss begged her not to even show the teaser for Power Rangers. That's how <laughs> embarrassed they were. But she insisted on it and she showed it. The thing that was a surprise and that was very interesting was a lot of the affiliates did not want to air the show. And Margaret had a brilliant idea where she cut the affiliates in on the merchandise. And Power Rangers was a hit from minute one. Like, mm -hmm. like halfway through episode 0001, it was already a hit. So by the time the toys came out, it was one of those cliched, like, there were no toys to be bought. That's how popular it was until the second season. Those, and this was the surprise, those affiliates who didn't want to air the show for what is believed to be the only time in the history of television were making more money from the merchandising than they were from the commercial sales. Which I would assume because, you know, you couldn't find it on the shelf. It was crazy. I mean, I never, I mean, and that particular that particular uh, history, you know, this is the first time I was hearing it. So I'm like, oh, uh, well, no, no wonder. 
Punisher. <laughs> All these affiliates are showing Power Rangers 24-7, 300. Yeah. Like, legit, legit. Yeah, I mean, it, it's never that the affiliates being cut into the merchandise, to the best of my knowledge, never happened before that, never happened again. So, in terms of um, surprises and things, I mean, one of the, one of the, uh, interviews that was on the show um, was uh, interviewing Heimsbahn. And to see that, <laughs> I guess it's part and parcel with how the episode was reduced as well, because there's like, there's a, you, you get your history, but then there's also this comedic timing to it as well. And so to see Haim being jovial in a sense is something that we're not used to seeing. Uh, so, uh, just describe the experience of, um, interviewing Heinz Vaughn. Oh, it's so funny you bring this up. It's so funny. Like, so I don't know how much you know about him or not. Sounds like you know quite a bit. Uh, A, as a rule, he does not do interviews. He hates doing interviews. Two, or B, uh, if there's any subject he hates talking about more than others, is Power Rangers. Are you serious? Yeah, and the reason for that is he's been talking about it for 40 years or 35 years, and he's just sick of it. So, and I get that. I mean, believe me, it, you know, imagine if you had to talk about the same thing every day for 30 years. So the thing that's very interesting is that I guarantee you, had we done Power Rangers in season one or two, Haim would not be in it at all. The reason that he's in season three is he watched seasons one and two and loved it. And he, through his people, actually reached out to us and was like, why did you do Star Trek in My Little Pony, or sorry, uh, Hello Kitty, before Power Rangers? So we knew even before season three was greenlit that he would do an interview. And sure enough, when season three was interviewed, he uh, was greenlit, he immediately said yes. And not only that, um, he, we were told a thousand times the day of the interview, uh, you only have one hour, you only have one hour, you only have one hour. We were in there just shy of three hours. His assistants kept coming over and handing him post-its, taking <laughs> them away. And part of the reason for that is, as I told you, we do a lot of research. And after the interview was over, um, and you know, he was taking off the microphone and everything, you know, he said, he's like, I literally, 80% of the questions you asked, I've never been asked before. Like a lot of his answers were like, Jesus, I haven't even thought about that since the day it happened. How do you even know about that? So I think that's part of why, I think he loved the show but I also, meaning toys that made us. Um, so I think he was already a fan, so he trusted us. But I also think he had a lot of respect. Like, he could tell how hard we had worked to have the right questions to ask. Was there anything that didn't make it onto the episode? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Quite a bit. I mean, if you would like to, you know, I mean, anything you would like to tell the, the people, you know, just a little, just a little bit, just a little something. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. We put the Blu-ray out about a month ago, uh, and it's just seasons one and two. 
And we already know it has sold so well that we will be putting out another Blu-ray next year that will have season three included. Uh, so when you hear about that, let's do another interview. Uh, and I will get into not only some of the stuff that'll be on that Blu-ray, but I'll even tell you some stuff that we didn't even put on the Blu-ray. Because he's like a super-duper honest guy. And, um, you know, sometimes when you interview people like that, you got to be really respectful and protective of their honesty. Mm -hmm. so I don't want to say anything that rewards his honesty with causing him grief with Hasbro or Disney or anybody else. But I will give you a clue. Uh, definitely a lot of stuff he told us about the Disney years uh, did not make it into the episode. I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, huh, oh, this part of the part of the episode is okay. Oh, interesting. So, sometimes you ask people a, uh, a, uh, like, we knew it was not a great situation. And sometimes when you know that ahead of time and you ask the question, you're like, listen, you know, we already know the answer, but, you know, in your own words, yes. like, what happened with you and Disney? And, uh, you know, nine, nine out of ten people will say something like, oh, don't believe everything that you read. Oh, it wasn't that bad. People are just trying to sell magazines and books. But he uh, he was not one of those people. Uh, he was very uh, he was very honest. He was uh, he was super duper honest. And um, <laughs> it, it, as you know, a little bit got into the show, but it, a, a lot of what didn't make it into the show on this topic uh, will be on the Blu-ray. Of course, of course. Well, I'm glad there's a Blu-ray coming out for season three. So that's good. That's good because you know. I'm not biased at all, but, you know, the more powerful, the better. You know what? On the topic of toys, there's nothing wrong with bias. <laughs> um, and then part of the episode, too, is uh, that there is also some focus on fans of the show. So, uh, you know, as I'm watching it, I'm just like, yep, I know, I know pretty much all of these people. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what made you decide on whom to reach out to and whom to uh, feature, that sort of thing. You know, we use pretty much the same system for every toy, which is um, we create, we usually find one or two experts, like the number one authority on that. Like with Star Wars, it was Brian Stillman. Uh, with uh, G.I. Joe, it was Dan Klingenschmidt. So every episode has an expert. And then those experts introduce us to a circle of other experts and collectors. And that's basically how we did it here. And it, for season one and two, I personally knew a lot of the experts. So when the show was greenlit, I could just pick up the phone and be like, yo, Dan, we're doing this. But this season, I really was not as close with these brands at the beginning. Now I am super tight with them. And, you know, I have a whole shelf of My Little Pony now. And I never had any Power Rangers before. Now I do. But um, what we basically did was use this circle of trust from the experts to recommend each other. 
to build the network that led to the, 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 the talking heads, but also the fact checking. Okay. All right. So, uh, anything that you wished, I mean, cause it's, you know, it's like 45 minutes. If you could, and then you mentioned that, you know, Blu-ray, there might be extra, anything that in particular in the, in the, in the terms of the actual episode where if you got just 15 more minutes that you would have added in. You know, I, I know immediately what it would be and I'm going to answer your question, but I don't think it would have made the show better. Mm-hmm. I think if we, I'll tell you this, I think if we had another 15 minutes, I would have put seven minutes into the Disney story. Cause that, that, that was a very interesting part of the history. I, I really would have beefed that up a little bit more. And then I, I really think I would have put the rest into, I, I think, I, I think we did an okay job in the My Little, in the Hello Kitty episode, explaining the, just unique and complicated aspect of Japanese pop culture. Okay. But a I don't know if everybody watched that episode. If I had to guess, they didn't. B, um, it, and this is what I'm saying, like, I wish we could have gotten a little bit more into the just, you know, the thing that's so interesting about Japanese pop culture. If you look, there's a Wikipedia page you could find that lists the top 100 pop culture franchises in our society, on our whole planet. And if you look at the hundred, like, think about 60 are American, two are British, and I would argue of the two British, you know, one's Harry Potter, one's James Bond, I would definitely argue Harry Potter's at least half American based on who owns who owns Scholastic and who owns Warner Brothers. So basically, you know, 60.5 to the United States, one and a half to England, and then like 38, I'm bad at math, but 38 <laughs> are Japanese. The thing that's really interesting about that statistic, if you think about it, I think there's about eight and a half billion humans. Japan is smaller than Rhode Island. There's less than 70 million Japanese. So this tiny country in terms of land and population, like France, Germany, Brazil, China, don't have a single franchise on the list. But this tiny little country <laughs> has the biggest number other than the USA. And I, I think that Power Rangers is more than Hello Kitty even, a, a really good way to show why. Because the same reason the United States dominates the list and Japan is in second place, despite having, you know, 
less than a third of our population, and they're smaller than our smallest state land-wise. But their process for how stories are developed, how stories are told, and also how the Japanese TV and movie business really is, and this is what they have in common with the United States, like very, very, very courageous. And that is something I would have liked to have gotten more into with this episode, is to just really show, you know, we talk about Margaret Lesh quite a bit, and don't get me wrong, I mean, as courageous an executive has, there, no one has, there's never been a more courageous executive. Uh, 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 maybe a couple tie her, but no one's more courageous than her. But she did, you know, the Japanese came first. It was created in Japan. And you have all these people at these companies who every time they say yes or greenlight something, they risk their jobs. And they greenlit this banana show about these people in these weird costumes and these fake cities fighting these weird monsters. And I just think it's a really interesting part of the Power Rangers story that I would argue no other country could have created Power Rangers than Japan. Right. And then even when, even with you guys um, traveling to Japan and interviewing a lot of the executives there, you know, something that we normally don't get to see, and of course dealing with the language barrier and everything, in terms of learning more about the history, yeah, talk us through a little bit about that, and especially traveling over there. So, I mean, it was like my fourth year in a row going to Japan. Um, you know, three were for toys, the other was for something else. And you know, when you travel to the same country four years in a row, you know, we're going to be back there in March. Um, you really start to develop relationships and, for lack of a better word, infrastructure. You know, so we have the same translator every time. We got the same drivers every time. They know us. We know them. And it just becomes very, very efficient to the point where there's borderline no language barrier. Mm. Uh, the thing that was very helpful was Hasbro basically told um, told everybody over there, we want to do this, we like this show, support it. And, and they did, um, but, you know, we definitely, uh, you know, we definitely had to, uh, you know, poke, poke them uh, a little more than we normally have to, uh, to get the good answers. Poke whom? The, uh, on the toy end? Toy end? Correct. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, the security that they have at their studio, like their sound stages, mm -hmm. exceeds anything I've seen anywhere on Earth, including Disney, Nintendo, Lego, uh, Warner Brothers. I mean, it, like, they wouldn't even let us they wouldn't even open the doors to the sound stages and let us look in but that that's that 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 would be my dream the dream of <laughs> seeing the sound stage okay all right yeah yeah i mean it was definitely my dream too but but you know again you you have to respect you know every company has their own culture 
-hmm. Every company has their own likes and dislikes. You know, for all we know, they had a bad experience with a documentary crew five years ago or 20 years ago. So you, you never know, you know, but were they warm and welcoming? Yes, absolutely. Like, did they give us tons of stuff to take home with us? Yes. Did other companies do that? Not always. Wait, what, um, what, did, what did they give you? What did they give you to take home? As far as I could tell, they kind of gave us like half of everything they made in 2018. Stop. I mean, it was like we had to leave stuff in the hotel. No. Yeah, it, it was a an embarrassing uh, uh it was a gigantic, uh, gigantic collection. Oh, gosh. Okay, so look, if you ever do, and it's probably not going to happen, but if you ever do a part two, and if you ever <laughs> have to go back there, just a couple of tips. Number one, carry a Power Ranger with you, right? And maybe you'll get to see some of them sound stages. And number two, <laughs> carry extra luggage. The end. So By the way, it's funny you say that, because I got a whole system for that, too. <laughs> All long, I, I collect sh crappy shirts that I get or people give me. And then whenever I go on a trip like that, I bring my oldest underwear, my oldest socks, because I throw it out every day. Um, so I actually, like when I come home, my suitcase is almost entirely full of souvenirs. But even with that preparation, we could not bring everything home. By the way... On that same trip, you know, we went to China and did a lot, and also in Japan too, of course, but, you know, we did a lot on turtles too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Playmates, they gave us tons of stuff too. The factory gave us like uh... four turtle tanks. Like each one of those, like, would fill up half my suitcase. Uh, I guess the last question is, now that you have finished this, any teasers uh, for any future episodes on the horizon? So just to be clear, season four, in no way, shape, or form, has been greenlit. But if it does get greenlit, I definitely want to do Hot Wheels slash Matchbox slash Micro Machines. I definitely want to do uh, Nerf. Uh, I definitely want to do D&D. &D. Uh, I definitely want to do a Superheroes uh, episode. Like, primarily Batman, but, you know, we'd cover all the superheroes, you know, the Mego days. So those, that's, those, if we only get to do four more, those would probably be the four. Well, I thank you so much for thank joining you. me. And The Toys I Made Us, season three, out right now, as we speak. So please, go check out not only the Power Rangers episode, but check out the rest of the, but first the Power Rangers one, because you know that's our bread and butter. There we go. So <laughs> thank you so much. It's on Netflix. Go check it out. And thank you again. Thank you. Thank you very much.